Good morning. Boy, it is like a perfect summer day today, isn't it? I was sitting out front uh, in our, our little patio uh, this morning going over the sermon and was just thinking, man, it is like perfect out here. And then I started to think that maybe one of the good things about always doing the Psalms in summers, it's helping me to love the Psalms more because now I'm like associating it with the summer. It's just, it's, it just feels very perfect to me. So, so we're excited to uh, be here together to, to dive in uh, to uh, this passage. Let me just pray one more time. Lord, we are grateful uh, for your goodness and kindness. Thank, thank you so much that we've been able to, to gather together uh, this morning on this beautiful day. And thank you that we uh, have had the chance to sing and uh, to pray and to confess our sins and our faith and now to hear from you. I pray you would help me and help all of us uh, to know your goodness and your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get into this passage today, I want to start by talking about uh, two people, one person I'm pretty sure uh, that you've heard of and then another that maybe uh, you've heard of. The first person that, that most of you, I presume, uh, have heard of is uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson, LBJ, as he was known, uh, the 36th president of the United States of America. And I learned everything that I thought I needed to know uh, about LBJ when, when I was growing up in school. I, I, I knew that he was uh, President Kennedy's vice president. I knew, you know, very dramatically he was, he was sworn in uh, to office on an airplane after President Kennedy was tragically shot and killed. And I knew that he was involved in some major legislation, like the Civil Rights Act, and also that he was involved uh, in the escalation of the Vietnam War. Uh, all, all the basics, uh, but it felt sufficient. Now, the second name uh, that uh, I want to bring up is the name of Robert Caro. Some of you have heard of him. Robert Caro is one of the most acclaimed authors uh, to ever live. He's a biographer. And in the last 45 years of his writing career, he has entirely focused on only one person, and the person that he has focused on is Lyndon Johnson. Robert Caro has written a four-part biography of Lyndon Johnson, and when you hear that, you might say, why did he do that? Did he just want to write you know, some, some shorter books and, and, and kind of put them together? No, the answer would be no, because these books average about 800 pages each. And you might think, wow, you know, over 3,000 pages and 45 years spent on LBJ, that, that seems like enough. Once again, you'd be wrong because Robert Caro is 87 years old and he's currently working on an extremely lengthy volume five to finish out the biography. So if you want a little light summer reading, might I suggest 3,000 pages on LBJ by Robert Caro. You'll be all caught up for when volume five comes out, and I don't know when that's happening, but it can't be too far in the future, it feels like. My, my wife, uh, Catherine, and I recently watched a documentary about Robert Caro and his editor. It's really good. It's called Turn Every Page, uh, if you're interested. And one of the most wonderful things about the documentary was just how seriously and, and in a sense, almost how, how reverently Mr. Caro treats the work of, of understanding and writing about history. For example, when Robert Caro was trying to write about LBJ's youth, there were a lot of things he could have done, right? He could have read uh, other books that had already been written. He could have uh, maybe conducted some phone interviews. He could have maybe even taken a short trip uh, to LBJ's uh, birthplace. But no, Robert Caro, to learn about LBJ, moved with his wife to rural Texas to the hill country for three years <laughs> so that he could learn as much as possible and write 
this history of a very powerful and very complicated man. But Robert Caro has said again and again, he's not just trying uh, to tell a story for the story's sake, he's trying to explain the world and how it works. He understands that history is not just history, but that history informs who we are and who we will be. As we continue our summer look at the Psalms, we come this morning to Psalm 85, in which many of these themes come into play as the psalmist looks back to history and also looks to what that history means for both the present and the future. And of course, Psalm 85, while it was written very long ago, will absolutely help us to to think about our, our own moment and even our own history, both as individuals and as a church, and what that history means Uh, as we look at what can sometimes feel like an uncertain future. We're going to take this psalm really in three sections. We're going to see a movement here. We'll see basically uh, at the beginning what has happened, then we will see what is happening, and then informed by our understanding of those two things, we will consider what will happen. So we start by seeing what has happened. We see that in verses 1 to 3. I'll read that section again. It says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So what has happened in the past, it's pretty plain to see here that that there was a point where God's people uh, were in distress and he delivered them. And they were in distress in this situation because they had lived and acted in a way that that made God angry. They had sinned against him. And we see it right here in the beginning, this classic rhythm that we see so often uh, in the Bible. God has uh, a people uh, that that he loves, the people of Jacob, the people of Israel. And God's people then decide that his love and his care aren't good enough. And so they go looking for someone or something else to help them and protect them. And while God is not a God who is quick to anger and not quick to wrath, he he does get angry because anger is the right and even loving response to the sin of the people. Dane Ortland points this out uh, in his book that we've mentioned several times, Gentle and Lowly, that God must be provoked to anger but not to love. And as another author points out, while God has always been been loving throughout eternity, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always existing in perfect love and fellowship together, his anger is actually a, a relatively new development coming into play when the people that he created and loved reject him. And clearly, that, that is what is happening here in Psalm 85. However, of course, This isn't the whole story, and the psalmist is able to remember not just the anger uh, of God, but much more than that, he remembers the mercy of God and what that looked like. He says, fortunes were restored. God showed his favor, and God forgave his people. He forgave the people, and he not only forgave the people's sin, but he covered it. He put it away. And those two words there, forgave and covered, it it shows us the, the depth of how completely God deals with the sin of his people. And towards verse 3, given that the sin is taken away, it is natural, according to God's good character, that his wrath and his anger would be gone as well. And that means in verses 1 to 3, in miniature, we see that things are restored to the way that they are supposed to be. Things were broken, 
and then things were made new. And even right there, that helps us to think a little bit about what it means when we see the Israelites' sin against the Lord, and, and it helps us to think about our own sin as well. And it's good for us to remember that, that one of the many things uh, that sin does is that it disrupts the way things are meant to be. We see this all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit that they were told not to eat. And then what happens, things are thrown into chaos and, and disorder. And we see that a division and a, and a chasm opens up between God and his people, and in a sense, even between heaven and earth. And we see this theme elsewhere uh, in the Old Testament, including a time in Israel's history when things got so bad that they were exiled from the land because of their sin. And many commentators see that exile in the background of this psalm, Psalm 85. And of course, we still see it today, right? One of the key things that happens when we come to church is that we recognize all these things to be true. We, we spend our week in the world and we see the things that, that are wrong with it. We see that things are, are not done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we come here on Sunday and we recognize this to be true and, and we confess. We confess that not only do we suffer from living in a world where things are not as they ought to be, we also confess that we are part of the problem. And this step of confession keeps us away from, from self-righteousness and, and inclines us towards humility. And, and this is so important when we consider patterning our lives according to this psalm, and even as we consider how we might follow the psalmist in the act of remembering, in the act of looking back. Because this psalm helps us to look back and to remember in the right way. Now, this is just part of the human condition, that, that we are compelled to look back to the past. We are all people that, that have histories, and our personal histories are part of larger histories, church history, national history, family history, and so on. And, and, and those histories are part of who we are, and, and of course they are important. And so it makes sense that, that, that a big part of our culture and the expressions within that culture revolve around past events. And, and I think these cultural expressions can, can be very instructive. If you're middle-aged uh, like me, you remember that Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days? Remember that one? Those glory days, they'll pass you by in the wink of a young girl's eye. <laughs> it's a song about looking back as an older person to a time when things seem to be better. And, and it's a very evocative uh, song, especially if you're an aging athlete. <laughs> Watch the video, it'll, it'll hit you a little bit for sure. Maybe if, if you're younger, it's, it's someone like Taylor Swift that speaks to your heart. Teenagers here, have you heard of this up-and-coming artist, Taylor Swift? I really think she's going to be something, so keep, keep an eye out. I'm here to help you with the trends. You know, I think one of the things that makes her popular, so many of her songs look back uh, in, in, in her own past, and it's something that, that we can maybe resonate uh, with. One of my favorite songs of hers is a song called Right Where You Left Me, which is about a particularly rough breakup. And she sings in that song, Did you ever hear about the girl who got frozen? Time went on for everybody else. She won't know it. She's still 23, inside her fantasy, how it was supposed to be. So both Bruce Springsteen and Taylor Swift and many other artists are, are tapping into the powerful emotion 
that we experience when we look back at former times. And, and while I, I really do, I love both of those songs, we know from the Bible that it's actually incomplete just to look back to a prior time and then think about how things were better back then. Ecclesiastes 7.10 says this, says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. And when we hear that verse, I think it's a little bit bracing because it then drives us to ask, well, well, what does it look like to remember and look back in a way that honors God? And I think that's ultimately what we are seeing in, in this first part of this psalm. We see what it looks like to remember well because what is being remembered here is not some previous state of glory for the people of Israel. No, what's being remembered is the history of the God who loves his people. There's a, there's a guy, Derek Kidner, excellent Bible scholar. He says this, he says, these verses show that Israel is not pining for past glories, which are often an optical illusion, but remembering past mercies. Hear that distinction. I think it's so important as we look back. Not past glories, but past mercies. Kidner then says, this is realistic. It is also stimulating. It leads to prayers rather than dreams. And this is so crucial. When we get stuck in the past in, in the wrong way, we often end up feeling forlorn or, or defeated or just maybe you know, retreating into a dream world where, where things are the way that we remember them to be. But when we remember well and remember what God is in the business of doing, instead there is fresh encouragement for us to keep going and to keep going well with humility, with dependence on Him. It's good for us as we consider our own history to, to major not on some supposed past glory where everything seemed good, but to major on seeing God's mercy again and again. And this is what we see in our next section in verses 4 to 7. It says, Restore us, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And so the psalmist now is armed with a right understanding, a right knowledge of the past. Our, knowledge, our, our, our author now considers the present because now Israel is in another situation very similar to the ones that they have faced in the past. Once again, they, they have angered God. Once again, things are not the way that they are supposed to be. And that relationship between God and his people is strained, and God's people are suffering some sort of consequences as a result. And so the psalmist asks some questions. Will you be angry forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? And the thing about these questions is that the author already knows the answer. The author knows that the answer to these questions, knows the answer to these questions because the author remembers God's past mercies. And remembering these past mercies has helped the psalmist to understand God's character. He is asking according to God's character, and that is a good way to ask. A lot of times, uh, Catherine and I will, will unwind uh, with the kids a little bit before bed, and this often involves, you know, watching a TV show or, or something together. And we often say, okay, we're, we're going to watch a show together and then it is time for you to go to bed. <laughs> but of course, kids being kids, they would always like to squeeze a little bit more time 
out of it. And so when the show ends, they'll inevitably ask if maybe we can watch something else like on YouTube or something real quick. And, and they know me, and, and they know how to ask. <laughs> they don't ask me if they can like, watch a clip of a show that I can't stand. They'll be like, no, go to bed. They'll ask, hey, can we watch you know, an old music video from when you were growing up? Or if they really want to stay up, hey, can we watch some sports highlights? And I find that there's always a few minutes available to watch the highlights for the 5,000th time of Syracuse winning the NCAA championship. There's always time for that, no matter how late it is. And so when that's the ask, there's a good chance that I am going to say yes. They know me, they know what I love to do, and they ask accordingly. And that's what the psalmist is doing here in a much greater and more significant way, asking according to God's character. He knows what God loves to do, and this knowledge informs how he then goes to God. In fact, some people have said that, that all of Psalm 85 is really an extended comment on one, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament from Exodus 34, where God describes himself as he passes by Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, when God describes himself here, he shows how deep his, his mercy and, and his grace and his love and faithfulness and forgiveness are. And, and yes, he, he will get angry, but he is slow to anger. And yes, he will bring about judgment, even across generations at times. But does it last forever? No, it does not. Again, Derek Kidner explains it well. He says, God's delight is in salvation. For this is creative work, bringing life out of death and joy out of gloom. Judgment, by contrast, is his strange and alien work in which he takes no pleasure. Ezekiel 18.32 is clear about this, where God says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. The Lord will bring about his anger and his wrath, but that is not what he delights to do. And so, when the psalmist says, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation, he's asking God to do what he loves to do. God is in the business of taking what is wrong and making it right again. This is what he loves to do. And when we know that this is what God loves to do, we are now freshly motivated to go to him again and ask him to do it. When we come to him in this way, we can know that he's not you know, rolling his eyes, annoyed that we're bothering him yet again. He wants to. He's ready to do this work. And this is important for us to know as individuals and even as a church in general because we continually are in need of restoration and renewal and revival. We don't ever want to come to a place where, where we believe that we don't need restoration or revival. Because in this life, it's never true that we've arrived Instead, we want to continue to see the ways that, that God would have us deepen and grow. What, where do we need to continue to repent? Where do we need to be restored? Where do we need to be revived? Those are questions that, that, that healthy Christians and healthy churches will continue to ask. And we, and we ask those things not with like morbid 
introspection, right? But joyfully, because we know that God has so much more for us as we press into following him. So we ask joyfully and expectantly, asking, all right, God, what what are you going to do next? It's a good thing to ask in these ways, and we ask these things in confidence because God loves to grow his people in this way. So we pray these prayers with confidence, and that's the kind of confidence that we see in the back part of our psalm in verses 8 to 13. And we're going to first briefly look at verses 8 and 9. It says, Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So in verses 8 to 9, the the author kind of pauses here to to consider how God will respond to his, his prayers for restoration and revival. And he also considers not just how God will respond, but how the people will respond. We see that the, the psalmist is very confident about how God will respond. He's, he's less confident about how the people will respond. And you see that here about God's people. He says, let them not turn back to folly. And, and this makes sense because God's people have a checkered history. It was true then, it's true now. And it's okay. It's okay for us to to admit this and talk about this because the church does not ultimately rest on the faithfulness of God's people, but on the faithfulness of God. That's one of the many reasons that it's so good for us uh, to to learn about and to read and to know uh, church history. I've recommended it multiple times, but I had someone come up to me last week tell me that this book was read and appreciated. So I'm mentioning it again, Bullies and Saints by John Dixon best church history book I've ever read. And one reason that, that it's so good is because it's just so honest about, about the good things and the bad things that have happened in and through the church over the last 2,000 years. And when we read these stories, we, we realize that, that the church is, is still here and still growing and thriving around the world, ultimately because of God's love and God's faithfulness. And then, instead of feeling the need to to just make up a story or whitewash our history or gloss over the bad parts, we can actually learn from those things and ask God to continue to renew and revive us. But while the psalmist is cautious about the character of God's people, he is not cautious about God's character. We see that here. He's confident of God's love and faithfulness. He's confident that the God who loves his people will speak peace to his people. In fact, he says God's salvation is near, but there's a qualifier there. It's near to those who fear him, those who understand that he is God, those who have been humbled to see their need for him and to see that he is the true God and that we are to entrust ourselves to him and him alone. And so the author on this basis looks forward to God being present with his people in a fuller way, saying, that glory may dwell in our land. Remember, the story of the Bible is that God created all things good, especially including men and women created to be and to bear God's image in the world, and that God would dwell with his people. But all that was ruptured when we told God that we'd rather do it our way. And it tears the the world up, and it brings about, as we've already said, a deep division between God and his people, and even between heaven and earth. 
the, the beautiful and harmonious world that, that God created has, has been deeply disturbed. But here in Psalm 85, 9, we hear that salvation is near and that the glory of God may dwell again with his people. So throughout the psalm, we, we've been hearing that, that word again and again, salvation, salvation, salvation. It's, it's one of those, those Christian words, right, that, that we can kind of nod at and, and, and assume uh, what it means. But as we've said before, as, as we've been walking through the psalms, one of the, one of the things that, that the psalms and, and biblical poetry do is, is it pushes us to, to consider things afresh so that we can be taken in again by the goodness of God. And I think that's what we see in our last few verses in 10 to 13. It says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Now, this section is widely recognized as an especially beautiful section of Scripture. And I think if there's one word to describe uh, this part of the psalm, it would be harmony. Things coming together in, in beauty and in goodness. We, we know about how beautiful harmony is in many ways. We're, we're reminded of this when we come together every Sunday, when, when we sing together. I mean, yes, you can sing by yourself. I can take the hymns and go home today and go in my room and, and sing them on my own, and that, and that would be fine. That would be good. But it's so much better to sing with other people because there's a beauty, right, in bringing your voice together with the voices of others. And what it does is it binds us to one another. Andrew Wilson, who's a pastor in the United Kingdom, says, when multiple people sing at once, and especially when they sing in harmony, the meaning of each individual line is heightened and strengthened by being unified with others. There's really, and you experience this, right? There's a transformative beauty in this kind of harmony, and, and that is what we see in a great way in these verses. We see love and faithfulness come together. And both of those words are, are really heavy and, and, and rich words that, that highlight God's covenant and his care for his people. We all want to be part of relationships where love and faithfulness come together because love and faithfulness together leads to great beauty and great security, the way that things are supposed to be. And just like love and faithfulness go together, so do righteousness and peace, which we beautifully see here, kissing each other. Righteousness means putting things to the way they should be, and peace here being the, the very powerful Hebrew word shalom, the state of things the way that they should be, in a way that is good and beautiful. And this harmony, this beauty is expressed in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, now there's, there's harmony between the ground and the sky, between God and his people. We see God the righteous, and we see the people responding in what? In faithfulness. And this is then further expressed in verse 12. There's a harmony there between the Lord faithfully giving what is good, sending rains, sending favorable conditions to the ground, and the ground, the land, responding, just like it is supposed to, with food and nourishment for the people. See, what we see in verses 11 and 12 is what full salvation and full Restoration and full revival looks like a renewed, forgiven, restored people in a renewed creation, functioning in the way that God has designed it to. Things are made right. 
And so it is appropriate for the psalmist to say that it is righteousness, one of God's beautiful characteristics that goes before him, and that as God walks in this way, so we respond in faith by following him. It's all right and good when things come together in this way. This is the way things are supposed to be. And in those last few verses, we get a picture really of of heaven and earth, once divided, beginning to come back together and overlap in a way that begins to transform the earth and make things right. As we've said earlier, there there are hints and and, and seeds of, of this all throughout the Bible where God brings blessing upon his people. He saves them, he delivers them, and then he sets things right to some degree. And Psalm 85 stands very much in that line. And this line, this thread that runs through the Old Testament and through Psalm 85 comes to much fuller expression when we turn the page to the New Testament where Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, is born in Bethlehem. And when that happens... Heaven and earth come together in a new way. And this is how Jesus lives his life. He brings the way of heaven, brings the way of the kingdom of God into a world that is sinful and hurting and broken and longing. I love how we sing it at Christmas. We should probably sing these songs more often, right? These Christmas songs. The words of O Holy Night. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary soul rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Jesus coming to earth was very much a new and glorious morn because it was a massive step forward in the fulfillment of the promise of Psalm 85 that things would indeed be made new and made right, and that we would more fully experience the love and faithfulness and forgiveness and righteousness and peace of God. And if you look at the life of Jesus, you can see in his earthly life how he is setting things right again and again. When people are sick, he heals them. When people are hungry, he feeds them. When a wedding is in trouble in the Bible because they're out of wine, Jesus makes more. When people are treated as outcasts, Jesus welcomes them. When people speak falsehood. He responds by speaking the truth in love. And when people sin, he forgives and restores them. And even when one of his friends dies, Jesus brings him back to life. Again and again, we begin to see that all the things that were wrong are becoming made right again. And then we see Jesus go to the cross, receiving and enduring the the just and right anger that God has for our sin and giving us the gift of receiving the favor of God rather than his hot anger so that we can experience the peace and righteousness and love of God. We've seen in this psalm how it has in its background the unholy division between heaven and earth, between God and his people, a division that was foisted upon the world by our sin, a division that we contribute to and also experience the effects of. And as a result, we are both sinners and sufferers. The Bible tells us that the ultimate answer for this comes on the day that Jesus returns. Just as he came the first time, but this time with a few differences. And one of those differences is that even more fully than when Jesus 
came to earth all those years ago. This time it will truly be heaven and earth coming together and overlapping in the kind of beautiful harmony that it's impossible for us to imagine. Revelation 21 is clear about this. Right at the end of the Bible, it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, as we rightly remember not only our own history, but much more importantly, the history of who God is and what he has done for his people, we live today with confidence, knowing that he will continue to be faithful to his promises and that all will be made right. And in the meantime, God draws the church together to be a community that remembers well so that we can live with confidence and hope as a light to the world around us. One of the ways that we remember well is when we come to the Lord's table. 